0: Before we start this week's episode of CR Crime, I would like to warn you that this episode contains mentions of suicide or attempts thereof. If you know somebody who is struggling or you yourself are in that position, drop what you're doing right now and call 1-800-273-TALK, 1-800-273-8255. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline you owe it to yourself and your loved ones and those who know you well. Thanks for listening. This is a Kitty Pod Production. Welcome to CR Crime, the only podcast that deals with stories of true crime in New York's Capital Region. I'm your host, Jason Bullitt. This week, we have a two-parter to conclude our Back to School series, and we wrap it up by examining the worst school shooting in Capital Region history, which is saying something and also not saying anything at all at the same time. I'm talking about the 2004 incident at Columbia High School in East Greenbush. The town of East Greenbush, located in Rensselaer County, was founded in 1855 as simply Greenbush. The directional name was added three years later and has remained to this very day. In Dutch colonial times, the hamlet of the same name was founded in 1630 as part of the manor of Rensselaerswick. One of the area's oldest roads, the Boston Post Road, now known as the Columbia Turnpike alias U.S. Routes 9 and 20, was established in 1800. Columbia High School, the site of this week's episode, is the lone high school in the suburban East Greenbush School District. Among its alumni is legendary NFL defensive tackle Ernie Stautner, Jessica Farley, star in air quotes of MTV reality series Jersey Shore, known as JWoww, for reals, NHL player Brian Lashoff, Jacob Clemente, the lead star of Broadway's Billy Elliot, and Craig Forth, who was briefly the principal of your narrator's nephew's elementary school. However, It was another student who contributed to the most infamous day in the school's history. The morning of February 9, 2004 dawned in its usual cold fashion, such as upstate New York in the wintertime. The previous Friday had been declared a snow day, so the unplanned three-day weekend pushed that day's work into Monday. It was also the start of the last week of classes before winter break. That same morning, John Romano, a former student at Columbia High, You'll find out why shortly. Woke up to get ready for classes at nearby Hudson Valley Community College, the first of which wouldn't start until 10 a.m. Over a year earlier, the sophomore was struggling with some of his classes. Sounds a bit like your narrator early in his high school tenure, but the reasons are way worse, in Romano's case. Romano's mother, Lorraine Bard, had noticed that her son had slipped into depression. Either that or maybe he had a hitherto unknown learning disability. Again, your narrator can relate with the latter. Sometime after Christmas 2002, it looked as though things had looked up academically for Romano. However, once classes resumed after the holidays, Romano called Bard and told her to pick him up from school and take him to the doctor. It was there that Romano revealed to the family doctor that he had entertained thoughts of suicide. He was started off on a low dose of Selexa a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, or SSRI for short, and reassured Barr that the side effects were rare. For the more medically inclined, the side effects of selexa, also known as citalopram, range from more common ones like nausea and headaches to the more serious such as increased suicidal ideation. A pair of studies released two years later revealed contradictory information about the link between SSRIs and suicide rates in children. Despite the doctor's reassurances, Bard wasn't completely sold and decided to get a second opinion from a psychologist. The psychologist not only ended up diagnosing Romano with major clinical depression, but agreed with the pediatrician on the SSRI matter. It was also sussed out that Romano had been suffering from depression for no less than two years. Efforts were also made to reduce Romano's course load at school, but while the school higher-ups were accommodating at first, talk ultimately changed to rearranging his schedule and even going so far as to provide home tutoring. In the end, Romano ended up going to the Four Winds Psychiatric Hospital in Saratoga Springs. After treatment, he was effectively homeschooled as he was given a home tutor. In June 2003, Romano was given an Individual Education Plan, or IEP, your narrator knows about those, allowing him to drop whatever courses he had been failing and extend his graduation time by an additional two years. When the 2003-2004 school year started that September, Romano started missing classes, skipping school altogether, and in the rare times he was in the building, he had begun engaging in bad behavior. By the time Romano had turned 16, Barr decided to pull her son out of Columbia High School and enroll him at HVCC. Romano had become a changed person by the time Thanksgiving rolled around, and it did not escape the family's notice. Romano even went so far as to say the blessing at Thanksgiving dinner. However, the good feelings wouldn't last too much longer. On the morning of February 9th, Romano parked near the football field at Columbia High School and, clad in a black leather jacket, made his way to the south tower of the building with a backpack on his person and a black case in tow. Romano walked past the main office and up a stairwell leading to the third floor of the south forum. He walked up the stairs and made his way to the boys' bathroom without being noticed. There were neither any security guards nor were there any metal detectors on school property, and Romano wanted to use Columbia's welcoming ethos to his advantage. Once in the bathroom, Romano began getting out a shotgun already loaded with five Winchester Super X heavy game loads. He had bought the gun at a nearby firearm store despite his mother's qualms in anticipation of going hunting the following autumn when his half-brother Matt was slated to return home from military duty in Iraq. Romano positioned himself outside room 315, where Linda Way was teaching her semester-long modern literature class. He then pulled out a cell phone and texted several of his friends, note bien that this was 2004, and cell phones had limited capabilities as compared to today, a message which read, I'm in school with shotgun, get out. Afterwards, Romano retreated back to the boys' bathroom and washed his hands. The gun laid across the sink. Eric Farrell, who had a bathroom pass, saw the scene and pleaded with Romano not to go along with the shooting. Romano didn't listen and bolted out the door ready to fire at 20 minutes until 11 o'clock in the morning. John Sawchuck, an assistant principal of the school, heard the first shotgun blast and thought an explosion had taken place in the metal shop, where a reporter from the local cable news station, Capital News 9, now known as Spectrum News, had been doing a story for a newscast that would air later in the day. Mike Bennett, a ninth grade special education teacher, thought that there had been a construction accident on site. The two sounds came within seconds of each other. Bennett and Sawchuck saw students milling around and decided to take swift action. Bennett shepherded some of them into a classroom and had them shelter in place there. Sawchuck, for his part, stepped back into the classroom of mathematics teacher Nancy Van Ort and told her to keep the classroom door locked. Pete Zilgme, a 10th grade social studies teacher, thought someone had set off an M80 firecracker. High school pranks, perhaps? but it was no firecracker. It was Romano firing off shots in the hallway. Romano had taken his shotgun into room 321, where Elizabeth Shanley taught sophomore English. On seeing Romano aim his gun at the students, Shanley screamed and then ordered her students to get underneath their desks. Though no shots were fired, Romano walked out of the classroom and Shanley was very quick to slam and lock the door behind her. Meanwhile, Sawchuck came up behind Romano and told them to give up the gun. Standing at only 6 feet 2 inches tall, Sawchuck was still every bit as strong, and he and Romano tried to wrestle the gun away. At the very least, he was hoping that Bennett would help wrestle Romano to the floor. Sawchuck yelled for Bennett's assistance, and the latter came onto the scene as if on cue. Romano was quick to regain purchase on the shotgun and aimed it at him. During the struggle, the gun went off and hit Bennett, sending him into Sue Owens' classroom. Nobody had been hit up until that point. The high school's luck had now run out. Romano and Sawchuck had been displaced only a few yards as a result of the recoil, and it was at this point that the former started going crazy. With Romano renewed by the events of seconds earlier, Sawchuck had yelled again for Bennett to help him, but he hadn't realized that Bennett had already been hit. Sawchuck decided to take bold action, pinning Romano against a wall near the social studies office, and verbally convinced Romano to give up the gun. He eventually did, and Sawchuck and substitute teacher Bill Talaski dragged Romano into the social studies office, with Sawchuck sitting on his back to prevent Romano from escaping. While all the mayhem was going on, Hank Kolakowski had forgotten his car keys and stopped by the main office to see if anyone had turned them in. Lost car keys would soon be way down the depth chart of things about which to worry for the man who was both a teacher at Columbia High and the East Greenbush Central School District Safety Coordinator. He and another assistant principal, Tim Cronell, saw a bunch of students being led out of the building's south end and decided to go investigate. One of the monitors told them to evacuate the building, but the pair said that they were trying to get Romano out, on the contrary, and thus set about enacting the school's lockdown plan. After making the announcement, Kolakoski and Cornell made their way to the main office and took shelter there. Kolakoski had extra incentive to take the aforementioned action. His daughter was a student at Columbia at the time. Kolakoski then immediately made a 911 call to the East Greenbush Police requesting both their presence and that an ambulance arrive on the scene. The police department, noting the seriousness of the situation, then contacted other police agencies around the capital region to provide mutual aid, including the New York State Police. Once the police arrived on the scene and the building was partially evacuated, a janitor and several other staffers led them to the social studies office, where Romano was still being held down by Sawchuk. As quoted in the Don Henley song New York Minute, somebody's going to emergency, somebody's going to jail. That was certainly the case in this instance. Mike Bennett was transported by ambulance to Albany Medical Center. Suffice it to say that he recovered despite having a piece of birdshot shrapnel lodged in his right calf and turning down surgery to remove it. While Romano was finally removed under heavy police protection over an hour after the first shots were fired. To search for the main reason nobody had lost their lives on that fateful day, one need only to look at then-recent history. Almost five years earlier, 12 students and a faculty member were gunned down at Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado. The intervening years saw every school district in the United States develop and, when the occasion unfortunately called for it, implement plans for whenever a shooting incident occurred. Hank Kolikovsky thought he and his team had done their level best in handling the situation, but in the immediate aftermath, his secretary demanded he take a phone call from an irate parent about one of their children. It appeared that there was a small hiccup amidst all the mayhem. Some of the students, after shivering in the upstate cold for some time, were evacuated to Goff Middle School with their names put on the list so they could be checked off every time their parents came to pick them up. However, not all of them left. Some of the rest stayed behind to give witness statements to the police, and someone down the line forgot to send that list, along with the other containing the evacuees. Shit got hot when the parents of those students arrived at Goff only to find that their child wasn't present on site, rather right back at the high school. Hank calmed the frantic mother down and apologized for the minor goof. Meanwhile, Romano was being held at the East Greenbush Police Station. Two alcohol, tobacco, and firearms agents arrived at the police station looking to take Romano into their custody. The desk sergeant on duty told them that they didn't have the ability to do so and when the agent slammed his badge against the protective glass, the sergeant pressed a button bringing down a metal grate which is used to protect them in the event they felt threatened. The grate almost cost the agent his hand as it came down. Back at his home on Pedalus Lane, police led a fruitless search for evidence. Romano was arraigned at 5.30 that evening in East Greenbush Town Court. Patricia DeAngelis, then the Rensselaer County District Attorney, had planned on charging Romano with an astounding 86 counts of attempted murder. But on the urging of presiding Judge Diane Schilling, she significantly pared it down to only two. Furthermore, Shelling did not set bail for Romano and told him that he could apply for bail directly to the county court. After the arraignment, Romano was escorted back to his cell and DeAngelis was given 144 hours, 6 days, to conduct a preliminary hearing. However, she decided to take the case to a grand jury and let them hash out the indictment. Next week we'll cover the John Romano trial and his surprising turn speaking out against school shootings as well as some more of the immediate aftermath of the incident at Columbia High. Join us, won't you? Thanks for listening to this episode of C.R. Crime, the only podcast that deals with tales of true crime from New York's capital region. This podcast is written, produced, narrated, and edited by yours truly, Jason Bullitt, also host of the Keep It to Yourself podcast, of which this is an offshoot. If you like this podcast, you can review this and my other podcast, in fact, the whole feed, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcatcher of your choosing. Or better yet, tell a friend and those in your circle. That's the best way that podcasts help get promoted and get more listeners. Until next week, stay safe out there. Bye-bye. Lost car keys would soon be way down the depth chart about... the.